would invite you to open your Bibles this evening to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3, I'll read verses 1 through 13, the end of this prophecy. The Lord turns the focus of the words of this prophet not only to a day that is yet to come, for it is a prophecy concerning those days that has not yet come, the judgment of Jerusalem by that great enemy Babylon, but that great and awesome day when Jerusalem herself shall be called Babylon, and God will set himself against that city in finality, and he will bring judgment But after that judgment of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, he will set his sights upon the nations, and he will make a new people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. That God will do through redemption something that looks like the reverse of what he did in the judgment at Babel. New hearts, new hands, new eyes. Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, I'll read to verse 13. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate. With none passing by, their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off despite everything for which I punished her. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. Therefore... Wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to assemble or to my assembly of kingdoms to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with my fire or with the fire of my jealousy. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord. To serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In that day, you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a meek And humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies. 
nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. This far the reading of God's word, <clears throat> excuse me, let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you this evening, and as we read your holy, glorious, inspired, and so timely word, we would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be found acceptable in your sight. We ask this, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now we come, as I wrote in my little intro or synopsis in the email, to the very edge of the end of this terrifying and glorious prophecy which the Lord had pronounced against Jerusalem. And not only Jerusalem, but also the nations against any and all who fail to honor the true Lord of heaven and earth, who bow to idols, who worship false gods, who when they hear the word of God, deny it, reject it, and do differently. Nahum, you will remember, was a prophecy against Nineveh given to Israel so that they may see that though Nineveh had once repented that capital or that great city of Assyria, God would come in judgment because they had failed to keep that repentance. Israel had failed to keep repentance and so they would become like Nineveh. There would come a day when none, none, would be left in that city that might call themselves the covenant people of God. We see that in verse 6 of chapter 3. But it is not just all bad news, nor is it only ever all bad news as it relates to the unfolding of the plan of redemption. And we live even now in that same state. There is a proclamation of judgment, but there is also a proclamation of redemption, of restoration, of bringing the remnant back and giving to them the lands that were taken away from the unrighteous. Now, next week, I think I've said that now four or five times today, next week, if God gives us another Lord's Day, we will gather and we will look at the joy that God has in the comfort of his people. The reason why there is any redemption at all is that is because what God wants. He delights in it. He delights in mercy. He relents over disaster. But there are those who through their unrighteousness and their persistent rebellion will receive the judgment and wrath of God. And so the time frame here in Zephaniah chapter 3 shifts. It shifts from... 500-ish years before the coming of Christ to 70 years after the coming of Christ. 30 years after the great day of Pentecost where there was a time of overlap between the kingdom of the old covenant and the people that we call the Jews and that of the kingdom being given to the Gentiles and the Gentiles being grafted into that great vine of the day of Pentecost. One day, we shall see Christ face to face. 
And even the things that are spoken of here in Zephaniah chapter 3 will become fully and finally true. When you hear that phrase, and I've used it before, the now and not yet of the covenant promises of God, this now and not yet is something that has been true of everyone who has hoped in the promise who has yet to live to the last day of human history. One day, everything will be now. But for now, there remains for us not quite yet. Tonight, I'm going to look at God's judgment upon Jerusalem that will lead to the day of full purification. Two points then I want to make. Verses 1 through 7 or 8, the day of final judgment. Sorry, verses 1 through 8, the day of final judgment. And then number 2, point number 2, the day of full purification. We see that in verses 9 through 13. So let's look at the day of final judgment. Now, judgment for the nations, as we saw in chapter 2, that there are nations that God outlines through his prophet Zephaniah who have sinned in such fashion, such high-handed, idolatrous actions that they will be judged. And here's how God judges. He uses warring nations to bring other nations low, whether it is the decadence of old Rome or perhaps even the decadence and sinfulness of this once great nation. You cannot establish and remain great and be divorced from the fear of God. It is essential that men, either as individuals or in covenant together with God, whether it is the state or the church or a family, we are all called to honor and obey the law of God. Jerusalem was no exception. In fact, she was to be the light the city on a hill, an exceptional city. Israel was to be an exceptional nation. They were to be covenantally faithful because what is the promise in Deuteronomy? If you keep my law, then other nations will come to you and ask you, how in the world do you do it? This happened with Solomon. Kings and queens would gather around the throne of Israel and they would sit at his feet and say, how do you do it? And Solomon would say, keep covenant with Yahweh. Keep covenant with the Lord, except if Israel did not obey, then other nations would be greater than Israel. The blessings would not flow towards Jerusalem. Only covenant cursings. And so there is a day coming for Jerusalem, and we see the sins of the nations as equivalent to the sins of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not meek. In fact, the very heart of this prophecy is seen in Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And the call is repentance. Seek the Lord. All you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice, seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden that day of the Lord's anger. This is a call to repentance. But what has Israel, what has the southern kingdom of Judah done instead? They are rebellious, they are polluted, they oppress. They have not obeyed, they have not received correction, they have not trusted, and they have not drawn near. 
They have run the other direction. They have gone after the other gods of the nations. And so she was a rebellious, polluted, and oppressing people. They were disobedient, unclean, and rather than blessing the strangers who were in their midst, they oppressed them. This is what unbelief does. It is either the righteousness of Christ opened up and poured out, or it is the condemnation of idolatry. And so these woes or sentences against the sins of the people are then followed by the Lord's indictments against those in various stages of leadership. And so in verses 1 and 2, we see a general woe or a sentence of condemnation, a description of their sinful rebellion against the Lord. Here is the reason for these things, that those who were charged by God to lead her, to rule her, to instruct her, to guide her, were themselves idolaters. The sheepdogs did not bark. The shepherds did not warn. And in fact, they opened the gates and let the wolves in. Let's look at these four categories of those who were called to faithfully rule. First, verse 3, princes. The princes who are in her midst are roaring lions. They abused their power and they preyed upon the weak. They were unjust. They took bribes. Not only that, but the judges were as evening wolves. That is, they rule or exercise the rule of law with partiality and corruption. They did not leave a bone until morning. They were ravenous in their injustice. The prophets were insolent and treacherous. They did not proclaim the true word of God. And instead, they preached falsehood and led the people astray. And then the priests, those charged with the maintenance of the temple and the administration of the sacrifices, they have polluted the sanctuary. And they did violence to the law. Think Ananias and Sapphira, strange fire. They did not exercise the regulative principle of worship. And instead, what did they do? They endeavored to devise through their idolatry and the syncretism. Syncretism is a technical word that means the blending of pagan religion with true religion. And you end up with this disgusting, synthesized, false religion. And those to whom the people were to go for help provided no help, no guides, no righteousness. What does this sound like? <laughs> and it's not just true of today. Every faithful Christian, everyone who loves Christ, everyone who looked forward to the promise of Christ in the Old Testament, if they were faithful, there were often situations in which they were faithful against those who were supposed to be faithful, and yet they were enemies of the gospel. Good prophets were put to death. But then look at verse 5. Those wicked rulers 
were in her midst, but there is the Lord. Verse 5, the Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. But the unjust knows no shame. Now there's a lot to unpack in verse 5. It could be a series in and of itself entitled The High-Handed Sins of Those Who Have Forgotten How to Blush. That is what these men are like. So when Zephaniah says, is proclaiming, is writing on behalf of the Lord, when the Lord is saying to Israel, I am right here. This is a word of comfort to the meek. But for those who are rebellious, it actually doesn't mean anything. They don't care. That the sins of Israel had grown so great that despite the fact that God regularly reminded them of his wrath and judgment, they still did the same thing time after time after time. This is what we call not only a sinful heart or a hard-hearted heart, but a heart that is wholly given over to rebellion. And that is an act of divine judgment. It's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. Despite the fact that we know that God is present with us, creation itself tells us that he is right here. We continue to say, I don't believe it. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Look at that last part. The unjust knows no shame. Testimony. That God has already judged them internally, as it were, and then the external expression of that judgment. I have cut off nations... Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate. With none passing by, their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction. Now, God is not operating with this. Maybe, maybe it'll work this time. Maybe, right? Like parents or those who exercise discipline. When will the discipline have its effect? That is not God. God is not weak or impotent or helpless in his judgment. And so when God says, surely you will fear me or you will receive instruction, it is an expression not of exasperation, but of the extent of the sinfulness of Israel in the face of all of his threats, of all of his allurements, of all of that comes with the covenant. She is so Wicked. And I have told her, if you do not obey, you will be cut off. That middle part of verse 7, so that her dwelling would not be cut off, despite everything for which I punished her. They rise early to sin. They get up early so that they can get a head start on their rebellion. That is Israel. They do not rise, as we sang earlier. We lie in bed at night and we meditate upon the promises of God. And we ought to, rightly so, wake up in the morning and think, 
I love it when my kids are screaming in the door. You know, that kind of thing. My baby is, she's woken me oh, five times tonight. And it can be easy to say, oh man, this is too much. But then we think, how sweet. <laughs> the sound of my covenant child's voice. How sweet it is to get up every morning and have food in the cupboard to prepare for breakfast. That God is fresh in all of his promises. This is not Israel. Why? Because they had lost perspective. And because of this, they were being judged. It is the day of final judgment. And there is no turning back. And then look at verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord... Now here, he is talking to those who are listening. But it is still a proclamation of judgment. So this verse 8 kind of straddles verses 1 through 7 and verses 9 through 20, although we're going to look at 9 through 13. Here, the Lord changes the object of those to whom he's speaking. In verses 1 through 7, he's talking to those who will not repent. In verse 8, he is talking to the meek, to the remnant, and he's saying, I've got to do something about these people before we can have a good life together. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Now, what God has done is systematically, through history, eradicated enemies of the gospel. And he has done this for the purpose of redemption. Now, when I say systematically destroyed nations, I'm talking about those who have allied themselves together against the gospel against those groups of people who organize themselves together and think that through this organization, this corporation of idolatry, we can stand against God. That game Red Rover, maybe you've played it, you link arms with the strongest guy you can find. And the nations are baring their teeth against God and they say, do your best. <laughs> and he does what is needed. And there are even those who are so foolish as to wish the wrath of God upon themselves. That is what idolatry is. It is to invite the wrath of God. And so the Lord here in verse 8 turns through his servant Zephaniah and he is speaking to the meek of whom we read in chapter 2, the remnant of which I've preached on a couple Sundays ago. And he is saying to them, judgment is coming. Now the clearest expression of this that we have in history is when God rode out against, through his son, Jesus Christ, against the temple and against the city of Jerusalem. And there on that day, or in that age, Christ showed the great consequence of betraying the Messiah when the Messiah was in the midst of his people, and he said, as John the Baptist did, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And instead of repenting for their sins, they rejected Christ, they put him to death, and they chose a murderer in his place. 
And what do you get when you choose violence over redemption? You get violence because violence begets violence. When your religion embraces violence, then the thing that is born of that unholy relationship is death. And so, in this day of full purification, in order for there to be a covenant relationship of comfort, the enemies of God must be erased. They must be destroyed. Now, this would happen in some measure when God would restore a small group of Israelites back to Jerusalem after Babylon waned in power, was defeated by the Persians, the Persians actually paid, they paid for the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and the temple. That's a pretty sweet deal. But when the temple was finished, there were many in Israel who mourned because the glory of that temple was less than the glory of Solomon's temple. Is that the fulfillment of this prophecy? Because that temple's gone too. In fact, that temple was destroyed and later Herod built a temple. It's amazing how God honors himself through the exercise of wicked men. And the testimony of Herod's wickedness is that when Christ arrives on the scene, they don't even understand that he is the temple. And not only that, but the Jews don't understand that he is the temple. In fact, this is what happens. When God judges Jerusalem and he sets his sights in a way that is recognizable, and the reason why it is recognizable is because on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is sent forth into the world by the Father and the Son, and there is an extraordinary outpouring of divine grace that leads to the conversion of those that is the fulfillment of the undoing of the judgment of the chaos of the speaking of other languages. Sorry, that was a run-on sentence. Look at verse 9. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. Why was it a tongue of fire? What is the symbolic significance of fire? Well, for some, fire consumes and there is nothing left. That's what happens to the wicked. But for those in whom the Holy Spirit comes to rest and dwell... That tongue that is a fire is a sanctifying fire. It is the voice of God using the work of the Savior, Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit to bring about in those who did not speak and worship the Lord. He gave them new mouths, new tongues. And in the same way that the judgment of God scattered the languages of those working in that tower of idolatry that we call Babel, Christ's redeeming work is sent out into the world and it reverses the curse, as it were. And it brings us in. And what do we do with this pure language? Well, we love one another. We use our mouths as God intended And we use our mouths 
in connection to hearts that are themselves redeemed. This final day of purification and bringing in is marked, it is displayed by the people themselves. And so tonight, as I sort of move towards the end, I want to look at the quality of the people that belong to this new community. And there is an overall descriptor, and that is holiness. I've already talked about in verse 9 a pure language with which to call upon the Lord. James talks about the need for our tongues to be purified. Even as Christians, we sort of have this forked tendency, right, to praise our Lord and Maker and then to curse the creation, those who bear God's image. This is not the way it should be. Instead, we must walk in step with the Holy Spirit and we must speak, not only sanctified speech, but we must devote ourselves to the true worship of the living God. What were these heathen Gentiles doing with their mouths prior to? Who were they worshiping prior to being converted by the Holy Spirit? They had the names of other gods in their mouth. And God is saying in grace, get those gods out of your mouth. We see this even forecasted in the prophecy of Hosea, where God will take that harlot woman and he will cause her by alluring her. He will take the names of the gods that she worshipped out of her mouth. How does he do this? He will make them detestable to her. He will make them detestable to her. He will reveal the vanity of that kind of worship. And not only that, but it will be a unified language. It is a language. We worship one God according to God's word. Not only that, but there will be a diverse people who were scattered that will be brought in from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. My worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Now, this prophecy has a couple of different layers to it. The Lord is not only speaking of the Gentile nations, but he is also talking here in reference one day to the remnant of the Jewish people who will one day be brought in in Revelation chapter 14, verse 5. Paul speaks about this in the book of Romans, and we're not there yet. We'll get there one day, probably next year or the year after that. <laughs> we'll see. But those who were dispersed, who fled Jerusalem, when he said, when you see the coming these indications that war is coming against Jerusalem, get out of the city. He will bring them back to himself. In fact, the diaspora at that time was the event that jump-started the evangelism of the nations when the people fled Jerusalem in AD 70. And when those people, the God-fearers, left because they heard the word of God, they were meek and they sought the Lord and they did what he instructed, they went out into these places and they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and the world has never been the same. What does that mean? Even when times are tough, preach the gospel. You never know what's going to happen. So many people have become Christians due to the reluctant moving of other Christians. 
Who knows where we may one day be? Right? How many people have moved to this state because of a kind of diaspora? I don't know. But God will bring about his purposes even in dispersion. He will do so by bringing in the lost. And what will they do? They will indicate their inclusion in the people of God by bringing an offering that reflects the lordship of Jesus Christ. The daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. They shall be true worshipers. How do we bring an offering? We do it in the name of Christ. Look at verse 11. In that day you shall not be ashamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Now, this is language that references the mountain in Jerusalem upon which the temple is built. But there is no more mountain. It is a reflection of what? Christ's lordship in the holy temple in heaven. And there will come a day that even those who rebelled against the Lord and denied him will be brought. When I say people, I don't mean those who are dead. I mean a system that denies that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. But this isn't just a promise for Jews. It is also a promise for any and all who reject the Lordship of Christ that God will and does. He is in the business of conquering the hearts of idolaters, of transgressors, and he gives them new mouths, new hearts, new eyes. And in the place of transgression, look at verse 12, the full course of his redemption will be that he will leave in the world, even in that city one day. One day the gospel will get back to Jerusalem and nobody will care if the temple gets rebuilt. Because what does it matter? The dome of the rock will not be there because Islam will have been long gone. And in the history of the world, it is a passing fad that cannot stand under the own weight of its idolatry. Idols die. They burn. That's what they do. Christ in his kingdom endures forever. And it may seem to us like the great enemies of the gospel are too strong to overcome. But what does Christ say? We're going to come full circle. And the glory of my grace will be shown that one day that this land that was once judged will be filled again with the meek and the humble and those who trust in the Lord. To me, the beauty of these prophecies shows me as a minister of the gospel and as a church what we should have our sights set on. Not only should we revel in the promises of victory, and not only do we need to know the game plan that is the gospel that comes to us from the book of Romans, but we need to see that as we are part of this, God has a plan. And the plan is to establish his people in his land And they will be a holy people. Now, some of the language that follows in verse 13 is, to me, it begins to stretch the imagination of, when is this actually taking place? Because the remnant of Israel are not just Jews that will one day believe, and God will have the victory. 
But there will be no unrighteousness. There'll be no lying. There'll be no more deceit. There'll be peace. That even as God is is reveling in the redeeming work that he has designed for his people, there is something that is even now being fulfilled, but there is also a part of this that, that gives us something to look forward to. And there will come a day when you and I, dear saints, by God's grace, if we hold fast to him, there will come a day that everywhere we go, there will be no sin whatsoever. There will be no occasion for lying because our mouths can't tell a lie. We have no ability. It's what Thomas Boston calls a state of glorification. Not able to sin, only able to do what is righteous. I can't even imagine, which is why Christ says you can't imagine. Because as soon as I imagine it, sin is right there lurking around the corner in my heart. And so Zephaniah has this multi-layered reality that God will continue to act as he has been unto the end of the eradication of all of his enemies and our enemies. And my word of encouragement to you is this. Do whatever it takes to be there. Now, I don't mean effort. I mean cling to the king, cling to the promises of God, rest in him and hope. Zephaniah is writing this, and there are many Jews that are about to be killed by the Babylonian nation. Daniel's about to show up on the scene. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those promises are theirs, and they had to fight for them. And even now Daniel is watching. He's going, guys, just hang on a little while longer. Do not bow the knee to Baal. Don't bow the knee to that statue that's built by whoever is in power, whatever state has control. Be faithful. Pray with your windows open. Be willing to go to the furnaces. Because the coming reality of Christ's second king coming is that one day you and I will walk in the land that God has established for us and there will only be peace. I think it's worth fighting for. I think it's worth hoping for. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God.